2008, Albuquerque, New Mexico. The first meeting of what would become the best-known chemist team since Nobel Prize winners Molina, Crutzen, and Roland was not auspicious. Jesse Pinkman wanted to cook as an artist with chili powder. Walter White called Pinkman's chili pea recipe garbage. In turn, Pinkman dismissed White's science. All he needed was a big jar. He was actually referring to a volumetric flask, which, as the appalled chemistry teacher Mr. White responded, is for general mixing and titration. You wouldn't apply heat to it. That's what a round-bottom 5,000-milliliter boiling flask is for. Pinkman's flasks almost certainly fractured and leaked out. It is the metaphor of the fractured flask, the punctured pail, the leaking bucket, if you will, that Jeff Snyder uses in this, the 18th episode of Making Sense, to explain why the inflationary concoction created by monetary technocrats isn't boiling over. First, we discuss why the Federal Reserve's monetization of some debt isn't inflationary. Second, we review the latest inflation readings from the United States. Finally, Snyder explains why the accelerating size of the U.S. Treasury's checking account isn't inflationary either. It is all about the metaphor. Technocrats and politicians pour inflationary water in, yes, but not only is the bucket not a full one, ready to spill over, it's perforated. Well, to head off a letter-writing campaign, this podcaster acknowledges that a fair number of you, dear listeners, feel your podcasting team missed the opportunity to employ the metaphor of the leaky cauldron, to cast central bankers as a coven of warlocks preparing a witch's brew of inflation. However, your podcaster prefers the analogy of the fractured flask. The technocrats style themselves as scientists not magicians. They surround themselves with very rare 800-milliliter Keldal-style recovery flasks and dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, Griffin beakers, and Erlenmeyer flasks. The tragic comedy is that despite the scientific accoutrements, they go about it in a Pinkman-like manner, heating volumetrics, adding adulterants like yield curve control, bank reserves, and chili pea. Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Making Sense, a production of Eurodollar University, where we try to understand the very foundation upon which economics and finance is built on, the creation and destruction of money. My name is Emil Kalinowski and I am joined by Jeff Snyder, who goes by the official title of Head of Global Research for Alhambra Investments. Of course, we all know him more as the curator of credit, the Father Brown of the monetary world, the Earl of the Euro dollar. Jeff, good morning. Good to see you again. Good to see you too, Emil. Jeff, we're going to talk about an article with a bucket is a big, big uh, symbol. And the first, and it's, uh, it's called, so long as the bucket is full of holes, treasury demand comes first. And uh, you wrote it on July 13th, and it's posted at Alhambra Investments. But before we dive into it, I want to wind the clock back some 36 years. In 1984, Dr. Peter Venkman, Dr. Ray Stance, Dr. Egon Spence, and Winston Zedmore found themselves 
in the New York City mayor's office, and they were asked to explain what in the paranormal was going on. And we have a transcript of that conversation, and here's what they said. What he means is Old Testament, Mr. Mayor, Mr. Mayor, real wrath of God type stuff. Fire and brimstone coming down from the skies, rivers and seas boiling, 40 years of darkness, earthquakes, volcanoes, the dead rising from the grave, human sacrifice, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Two generations later, Jeffrey P. Snyder, the opening line here for this article, wrote, Foreigners are dumping their treasuries. The Fed is monetizing the debt. The federal government has gone insane. Mass fiscal hysteria. Yeah, the treasury market's dead, right? The interest rates are going to skyrocket. The dollar's going to go to zero and everything else that we've heard about. Intermittently over the last dozen years that have become back, that have come full circle back again and the mainstream is convinced all of these things are going to happen. And of course, to prevent this massive hysteria from happening, the Federal Reserve is, is going to, while monetizing the debt, going to have to use yield caps to keep the interest rates low enough so that it doesn't disrupt this magnificent recovery that is currently underway, which will make the COVID-19 thing seem like a, a, like a non-event, almost a complete non-event entirely. So yes, that's the mass hysteria is that things are so good the Fed is doing such a wonderful job. Our biggest problem is inflation. Well, they're working ahead. They're thinking ahead, aren't they, though? They're preparing. Or do they think the inflation is going to be imminent? They are working ahead, but their working ahead never happens. It's <laughs> one of those things where they think this has to happen. I mean, right, all of our scholarship, all of our beautiful, elegant econometric models – they all point to this one thing happening. Never mind that it is. It, every time we predict this, it doesn't happen. In fact, usually when we predict these kinds of outcomes, the opposite thing happens. Never mind that. The numbers are what the numbers are. And how do you argue with numbers? Well, you can't argue with numbers, obviously. And no, no, no economist will ever try to argue with his own numbers because they treat these econometric models like they're their own children. Therefore, whatever the models say, no matter, no matter how worthless they are, they're going to listen to them. Let's, well, let's start with the title. How about that? And you, it's a couple of paragraphs in, you say, and I, and I guess my question is, what do you mean by this quote here? Quote, the demand comes first. Then that's in your title. Treasury demand comes first. So you say, quote, the demand comes first. That's the thing. So long as it does, supply can't be an issue. Demand, supply, in this specific instance, we're talking about the treasury market. So demand for treasuries is obviously through the roof. That's why yields are at record lows and the front end of the curve is pinned down almost to zero. It has nothing to do with the Fed or very little to do with the Fed. It's the fact that because of the circumstances that we find ourselves within, that the demand for this kind of paper is through the roof. Therefore, so long as demand remains, what the hell do we need yield caps for? Because yield caps are the situation where the Federal Reserve buys treasuries because the market doesn't want them. Therefore, the Fed is the marginal buyer keep trying to keep interest rates from skyrocketing, which can be harmful if it's disorderly in nature. So the Fed is saying, in, in essence, by, trying to, by moving toward yield caps, I mean, forget it. I, mean, I think you put it, you put it very well last week, Emil, when you said that 
you know, it's the, it's the must have toy for the holidays for central bankers. They are going to implement yield caps. It's definitely coming and we don't need them because what, what the, what the, what the fed is saying, what Jay Powell is saying with yield caps is we are predicting that things are going to get so good, so inflationary that demand for treasuries is going to fall to such a level. The fed will have to step in and buy all of them that whatever, whatever amount they need to keep rates from skyrocketing. And what we've seen, especially recently, is that no, there is no interruption in demand. And you go back the last 13 years, it's in, it's you know it's it's a pretty it's a pretty well established trend that so long as the monetary system is broken, that we'll get into the analogy of the of the leaky bucket, demand for treasuries will always be there, and it will be there regardless of the amount that is supplied. You know, we heard all of this stuff back in 2009 when quantitative easing seemed like it was this brand new thing that was powerful and money printing and all this wonderful inflationary stuff. And we heard it again there. They didn't go into yield caps because they didn't think they needed to, but it was the same. We were going to see the dollar fall. We're going to see interest rates skyrocket. We're going to see inflation break out and none of those things ever happened. So here we are again, 12 years later with rates even lower. I mean, we're talking within sight of Japanese bond market. And yet They've, they never learned from a Japanese experience that there's always demand for safe instruments, safe and liquid instruments, so long as nothing changes. And really, has anything changed recently? No, not a thing. If anything, it's gotten worse. We've gone through this COVID-inspired shutdown, which has made all of the bad things that were driving demand before into even, even more bad things that are driving demand through the roof. Well, Jeff, you... I guess the only thing that's changed is that uh, it's just gotten bigger and louder, but it's still the same music that they're playing. And it's terrible music, the elevator stuff. Nobody wants that. Jeff, you ask a couple of questions in the article. I'm assuming they're not rhetorical, so I'm going to ask you to answer them. First, did the Fed actually monetize the debt? Second, does monetizing lead to inflation? Well, did they? Will it? In one sense, yes, but in another sense, no. And it's, it's a complicated issue because, you know, what the Fed bought recently was mostly bonds and notes. They stayed out of the bill market, which to me is a huge signal. I mean, we talk about this all the time, repo collateral, on the run, most liquid stuff. Don't buy the damn bills because that's the best collateral. And what happened in, in, the, in the treasury market in, in March was a bright dividing line where the on-the-run stuff was the only thing that was accepted in repo, or, or practically, you know, I'm speaking in absolutes and extremes here. But and so the Fed has been careful about which, you know, exactly the opposite of the way they had been in up to leading up to March when their not QE program bought exclusively Treasury bills. So the Fed is being careful about what it's actually doing. So in a strict sense, it's monetizing some of the debt but it's not monetizing all of that, which to people who are, you know, are predisposed to believe in inflation, they don't care either way. The Fed's buying government paper, therefore that has to be inflationary because that's what history has shown. But when you actually look at history, no, that's not always the case either. There have been periods where governments do monetize debt and it doesn't become inflationary either. So there's, there's at the very least more to the story. And when we examine the last time the Federal Reserve was in the monetizing business in the 1940s for World War II, you, same thing. Um, when you look at it specifically from the Treasury bill aspect of it, you know, the government issued tons and tons of Treasury bills, 
which the Federal Reserve bought nearly all of them. I mean, they monetized almost all of it. I think it was something like 90-some percent at one point. All of the bills that the Treasury, Treasury sold, the Fed bought. And that was, you know, as we talked about before, that was to make sure that their three-eighths of a percent yield cap or yield uh, ceiling was maintained. So that's what the Fed was doing. And, of course, you know, that wasn't the entire story. So even though the Fed was monetizing all of these bills, and we're talking about, you know, I think it was at $1.15 billion, which was a lot of money back then. <laughs> billion used to mean a lot. So, fifth, I mean, that amount of debt being monetized by the Fed, maybe it should have been inflationary. At least it was, it was, it was pictured to be inflationary. But it wasn't. It didn't turn out to be inflationary either because there was more to the story. And the rest of the story was in how there was demand for government debt beyond strictly bills. The Fed didn't have to monetize very much in the certificates of indebtedness, which are other short-term treasury instruments that pay a coupon, nor did, they, nor did the Fed buy you know, even a drop in the, a drop in the bucket in the, in the notes and bonds segment. So there was demand for government debt beyond the Federal Reserve, way beyond the Federal Reserve, and that's what kept rates low throughout that period, World War II, after the Depression, simply because the baseline or the background behind it, behind whatever the Fed was doing, was not conducive to an inflationary breakout, no matter what the Fed was doing. Again, we always talk about the banking system. The banking system matters. What the banking system was saying was, <laughs> World War II is not going to be an inflationary thing. You know, the immediate aftermath of the Great Depression and then into a World War situation that's probably not going to be conducive to massive credit growth and you know, uninspired or unrestrained monetary growth along with it. The banking system was signaling through bond yields all throughout that period that didn't matter that the Fed was buying every bill and monetizing parts of the debt or other not parts, uh, not parts of the other parts of the debt. What did matter was the environment behind what the Fed was attempting to do. And so long as there was demand for government paper because of that background, this deflationary background, the Fed was, you know, essentially a bystander. It, it, its role was limited to limiting, uh, capping the yield on only the bill segment of the market. Jeff, earlier you said that people are concerned that the market doesn't want the treasuries, or no, that people are concerned, right? Not you're disputing that, that they obviously do want them. But at, but just a moment ago, you also said you identified, you mentioned, reminded us what happened in March during that full body dry heave, that cat-like retching, that there was a bifurcation in the market between the on-the-run and the off-the-run U.S. Treasuries. Now, a lot of weird stuff has happened in the last 13 years, but I think that for that makes my personal top 10 craziest thing that I could have imagined would be the idea that... Uh, market participants were not interested in off-the-run treasury securities. Do I have that right? Does that make it higher on your all-time crazy list? And can you explain a little bit what what are we talking about here? I don't know if it's on my all-time crazy list so much as it is on my all-time I told you so list. You know, it's, I hate to be that way, but really, I mean, I've been talking about the collateral bottleneck for years, and here here it is showing up exactly in the treasury market. And all it means is we have to remember, why do cash lenders accept collateral in return for the cash they lend? And they do it for security. But where does that security come from? The security comes from the knowledge that tomorrow, 
if you default on the cash loan, I have that security in my possession that I can liquidate. As long as I'm reasonably assured that I can liquidate that security tomorrow, we'll do the trade and everything will work fine. But if the market for that security tends to be, or for any reason becomes questionable, I'm not going to want to, I'm not going to want that security. I'm not going to take it. Even if I don't care what kind of security it is, if there's no market for it, that, that I, then I run the risk of being stuck with an illiquid asset, which could cause me to loot, to, to generate a, a pretty substantial loss, which is not something anybody who's entering short-term money markets ever wants to contemplate. You don't go into the repo market to lend cash thinking I'm going to lose my ass in it because you, you won't, you aren't going to do it in that situation. So if for any reason, liquidity in whatever market, even if it's treasuries, becomes suspect, it doesn't even have to disappear. It just has to be suspect. I'm no longer going to accept that collateral because I need to be assured that there's a market for it tomorrow that I can get rid of that in case you default. And usually those two things go together. You, you begin to be suspicious about markets at the same time you begin to be suspicious about the people borrowing cash from you, right? It's another reason to pull back from the repo market. And it's another reason why you would further prioritize the most liquid treasuries over the non-liquid treasuries. We only have a couple of minutes left in for this article, for this segment. So this will be my last question. And of course, it's an open-ended question that requires the most amount of time. So I'm putting you in a difficult position. I know it. Please excuse. So near the end of your article, you say, quote, Back then, the Fed bought all the bills and almost nothing else. Today, the Fed buys some bonds and hardly any bills. In both cases, the American people were and are led to believe this was and is inflationary, especially in 1947. Balance sheet expansion like this could be, but only under the right circumstances. I know when I was learning, it always helped to kind of put uh, a concept in another light to understand, maybe put it in the opposite state to understand the concept. Jeff, what are those right circumstances? Um, you think about times like, or places like Zimbabwe or Argentina or you know, Venezuela, where there, you know, there's the background in, uh, circumstances that are going on behind it are conducive to an inflationary breakout. You know, what I'm basically talking about is under deflationary conditions, like that we saw in the 40s, in the, in the 1930s, as we've seen since 2007, it almost doesn't matter what the Fed does because the Fed is a bystander. That's what, you know, getting back to the leaky bucket analogy, that's what it really means. The leaky bucket is essentially the deflation, monetary destruction, water flowing out of the, uh, the, the vessel, for lack of a better term. And what that means is, you know, what the Fed responds to is the water level falling. They're not responding to the deflation because they can't define money either. And so what they're looking at is, okay, we've got all the symptoms of a monetary crisis. Therefore, what do we start to do? They start to add water back into the bucket. They don't fix the bucket. That's the background. That's what I'm really talking about. So long as the bucket is leaking, it doesn't matter if you keep adding water to it. You're going to have to keep adding water to it. You have to keep adding and adding and adding. And in most cases where we talk about these deflationary background, the water leaks out faster than the Fed adds any money back into it, assuming the Fed actually adds money into it. I'm, being, I'm putting them in the most charitable circumstances to begin with. So that's what we're really talking about here. If we're in a circumstance where the bucket is leaking and the Fed doesn't fix the bucket, 
you're not going to get the inflation. You're going to get this, this, this continuous demand for the safest, most liquid instruments. And that includes, as we talked about last week, even risky bonds, risky corporate bonds, because they're liquid as opposed to bank lending and things like that. So it's really the leaky bucket, and that's where the analogy comes in. So long as the bucket's leaking, forget it. There's, there's no inflation. There's, there's going to be demand for treasuries and, and liquid instruments. If this show was a professional show, it would have sponsorship, and this would be a perfect moment to be sponsored by a bucket shop. Alas, it's sponsored by Jeff Snyder's Twitter account, at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. Jeff, let's move on to our next article, and it's called Transitory the Other Way. Uh, you wrote it on July 14th. It's at uh, Alhambra Investments. Let's start with three consecutive months of falling core inflation as measured by the consumer price index. Is that unusual? Unusual, yeah, it's never happened before. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think it's the very definition of unusual. No, I mean, you can have all sorts of discussions about inflation, CPI, PC deflator, and all those kinds of things. And, you know, in some ways, it's like taking the average of a phone book. It, it's somewhat meaningless. I mean, people have a lot of problems with, this. is that really measuring consumer prices? Is it, is it representative of the actual urban consumer and, and all this stuff? But when you look at especially the core CPI, where, it's, where I think it's valuable is that when it has these hiccups, these hiccups always, always correspond with things like recession, especially the worst recessions. So whatever you think about the CPI as a, you know, a tool of measuring inflation, it does seem to correlate and give you a signal for some of the worst circumstances. Therefore, you know, maybe it's something you pay attention to especially on the downside. We can argue about the upside and inflation and all that, what it leaves out or what it doesn't include and hedonics and all those other kinds of adjustments. But on the downside in these situations, uh, a negative month in the core CPI, which strips out the volatile food and energy prices, in the core CPI, when you see it fall on a monthly basis, that's usually not a good sign in any single month. Now, you see it two times in a row. That had only happened once before, and that was in 1981 or 82 at the end of what was by what was at the time the worst recession we had experienced up until you know be, uh, since the great depression up until the early 80s until until we got to the great recession even in the great recession 2008 2009 the core cpi never declined in two consecutive months in fact the worst decline for it came in 2000 i think it was late 2009 closer to 2010 at the bottom of the labor market that's really what we're talking about here um, the cpi is related closely to real conditions in the labor market. I'm not going to get into the Phillips curve or any of that stuff yet. But what we're the main message here is that when you have a monthly decline in the core CPI, that's something you need to pay attention to because it corresponds with, with some really bad stuff. Two months in a row had never happened before except for 1982. Three months in a row was simply unprecedented. So you, you mentioned that... Uh core CPI, when most people hear about inflation and that we're excluding energy and uh, food, I think most people are repelled by that. Uh, is it because I guess that's what the common person experienced and that's what they think of inflation. Is it that a common, uh, economists are not commoners? Is it that they can't be killed, that they're seven feet tall, that they drink blood? Or is it something more prosaic, that they're just trying to measure monetary inflation that's what they're really after 
and we think that they care about our kind of inflation. Yeah, well, there's there's definitely a, a divergence in perception because we what we perceive of inflation is usually food and energy, right? The the most common things that we do all the time. You, you go to the grocery store, you fill up your car. Those those are the most basic kinds of consumer behaviors that we noticed, and a lot of times skipping, you know, we'll skip oil prices for now, but in the food areas, you know, there's this definite um, divergence between perception and what the numbers say. Because food prices have been rising far more rapidly than the CPI, along with other things like education and healthcare, medicines, these other things. So we, we tend to notice that. We tend to notice that the prices of our basic stuff that we, we pay attention to are going up. And so we think, well, how can the CPI be so low? Because we don't pay attention to the other stuff that may be going down in price. And when we're talking about monetary inflation, what we really mean is all of those things together, a general trend in consumer prices that is upward, where everything goes up because there's too much money chasing too few goods. That's the old, the old adage about inflation was too much money chasing not enough goods or however you want to phrase it. So if that's what we see in the consumer price index, you would see not only food and medicine and education prices rise, you would also see the price of computers, things that are going down, telephones, telecommunication, things that have gotten cheaper over the last 11 years, they would be going up too because money would be competing with those things to, and that would drive up the price, you know, consumer price, pricing power in the hands of corporations, like we saw during the great inflation where not only food prices went up, but the prices on things that had been declining in the 1960s, suddenly they went up too. So it's a general rise in prices that, that, that tells us about monetary inflation. And as I said before, when we see, them, we see something like the core CPI go backward, that tells us that there's a somewhat of a deflationary impulse underneath the economy, including you know, in those particular months where the CPI was falling, Food prices were rising rather rapidly, weren't they? So again, you know, there's a there's definitely a divergence, and it's it's definitely it's a valid argument. But you know, if, from my perspective, if we look at these other times where the CPI does correlate, especially with deep recessions, that's what we need to be focused on right now. And then you did mention that the all-in CPI. You mentioned that in your article, and that it increased by just zero point six five percent year over year. So if you do factor everything in, that's not very much. And it was really just the oil market that you're saying that it went up and it wasn't the greatest flood since Noah of monetary liquidity. Yeah, remember, we're talking about June 2000, uh, 2020 here, right? So we're now talking about, what is that, three full months since uh, Jay Powell's great flood? Uh, so if there's all this massive money printing, then you know, it, shouldn't it be showing up somewhere? Um, not just the stock market, and it's not really showing up in the stock market, at least not directly. So, you know, again, we, we're, we're right back at square at the, what we talked about before, where the Fed is is trying to tell you a story, but it's not a real story. It's a fiction. It's a fairy tale. It doesn't actually happen in reality. And if you actually pinned down Jay Powell or anybody at the FOMC and made them answer you truthfully and honestly, they would say, well, yeah, we know that too. Our intent isn't to flood the system with money. It's just to get people to think that we are so they act like we are. And therefore, they're trying to get you and me to act inflationary. And that will be where the inflation comes from. But again, you know, it's, it's not really possible. I've got one more wonkish 
inflationary question before. Maybe we broaden it out to the U.S. dollar in the bigger picture. But there's something called the flexible price CPI, which I had never heard of. And you said that it's been negative for four consecutive months. Is that even crazier than core CPI? Uh, and how far back does this data series go? The flexible CPI, I believe, goes back into the 60s. And there's actually something, its twin companion is called the sticky CPI. <laughs> what some researchers did was they tried to figure out, okay, you know, I mean, you think flexible, aren't all prices flexible? Well, no. Sometimes you can change prices for certain products much, much faster than you can for others. Some prices, you know, companies, are, they have to leave them at the same price for months or even years at a time. And so what the, what the researchers did is, they, they tried to put all of the prices that can change very rapidly at, uh, you know, at a moment's notice in a bucket to kind of get a sense of what the, the economy was doing at that particular time and how people who are able to act upon their immediate perceptions, what they're actually doing. And so if you look at the flexible CPI over the last four months, what, what the people who are, what companies who have the, most the best ability to change prices in a very short-term situation or very you know, you know, change prices as, as, as much as they possibly can, prices have been falling for four straight months, including prices in June. So that's indicative of, you know, further discounting being go going on now, which is a deflationary type of pressure, not an inflationary one. So it's, you know, it's not a, it's not a big signal. It's not a dispositive clue or anything like that, but it is another kind of, 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 of signal that what we're seeing isn't the product of this massive biblical monetary flood. Another signal is the dollar. And you say, quote, the CPI, CPI like the dollar indicates that Powell was saved by the reopening rather than the common narrative that the Fed saved the world until reopening. What is the dollar corroborating? Well, if you can look at the dollar, and we use the dollar index, for example, and there's many different dollar indexes. I prefer the trade-weighted index because I think that's more closely aligned with how the system actually works. I think the main dollar index, DXY, that's, that's good enough, but that, you got to remember with DXY, it's influenced mostly by the yen and the euro. But we look at the dollar, it's, you know, the global financial crisis number two is pretty obvious. It was a massive dollar spike, it's huge short squeeze because of the, the, the dollar shortage, the monetary destruction that we've been talking about, the leaky bucket, there it is. There's the leaks in the bucket right, right, right in front of you. But ever since Jay Powell's massive flood, when he panicked and did all this QE stuff and all these other kinds of, uh, of rescues and these acronyms all over the place, dollar swaps, whatever it was, you know, ever since that point, that's supposedly been the flood, this inflationary flood we're supposed to pay attention to. And yet, the dollar, after the initial crisis period, kind of stuck around at a really elevated rate, which kind of says, wait a minute, if Jay Powell is flooding the world with liquidity, as he said in, in 60 Minutes, yes, we did a flood. Why isn't the dollar responding to that, to that you know, addition of liquidity across global markets? In fact, it didn't actually start to come back down until the middle of May, which is, which is a pretty important time period because... What else happened in the middle of May? It wasn't that the monetary flood from the Federal Reserve suddenly showed up. It was, as we look at jobless claims, the middle of May, that was when the economy, the U.S. economy and other economies around the world, but the U.S. economy in particular, began to reopen. 
And so that's what I was saying is that here we have the dollar saying, wait a minute, bank reserves are going up at the same time the dollar is going up and staying up, which is not what we, what we would expect with a flood of liquidity. Instead, the dollar only comes down when the, the economy is reopened. So Powell was saved by reopening, not Powell saving the economy until reopening. Jeff, last question on this article. I read your work. I have been for a long time. And since this, uh, the crisis began, I would say that this article is your most explicit, that your interpretation, and that's not ex- utterly explicit, but it's just the one that stands out the most, that your interpretation of the monetary data and the economic accounts, is, it suggests that you feel that May and June in some undefined period immediately in front of us will, in retrospect, be seen as a reprieve and not as a resolution of what we experience in, in March. Is that right? Are you feeling a couple months in now that this isn't going to, it's not going to hold the recovery? Yeah, I think I've, I've definitely explained it this way through the labor, um, labor market statistics is that there's really you know, two groups uh, in the labor market, two groups of unemployed, and you can think about it in the broader economy in the same way. There's, there's kind of two different processes or, or two different things or two different underlying conditions. What we're seeing in, you know, over the last couple months is that the shutdown and reopening has dominated the headlines and dominated the big statistics, which has given us some of these most you know, record highs, record big, massive positives in whatever various economic accounts. You know, it was retail sales in the U.S. a couple, you know, a couple months ago. Uh, you see it across Europe. You see it across a lot of different places where these gigantic positives. And it sounds like, hey, the economy is roaring back to life. When in fact, when you look at it as a whole, when you start to factor this other part of the economy, the one that isn't necessarily related to the shutdown and reopening, it's okay. Once the reopening happens, once it gets through the vast majority of its process and things are, th- are back to uh, almost completely reopened again, then what happens? That's when we, I think, will start to see the economic damage uh, start to come up, start to come up not just in you know the statistics, but in how we actually behave and how the economy behaves. And that, yeah, once we get through this window of gigantic positives on the other side of it, it might not look the way that people are expecting when they're looking at only those gigantic positives, which are in some ways misleading. Well, for the audience, if you're enjoying this show and you're watching it on YouTube, you can also get it as a podcast and you can get them, download them from Apple, iHeart, Castro, TuneIn, Google, Spotify, CastBox, Breaker, Podbean. If I worked out more, I'd be able to do it all in one breath. Stitcher, Overcast, PocketCast, and pod it, podcast addict. Jeff, uh, let's turn to our last article, and it's called Wait a Minute. The dollar and the Fed's bank reserves are directly not inversely related. Now, 10th grade English class, I practice my signature. But even then, it sunk into me that you shouldn't use too many negatives in a single phrase. Of course, that doesn't make no never mind to me. Nevertheless, I pose it to you. What do you mean, what is backward, what is directly, not inversely related? 
Yeah, the, the bank reserves, right? That's printing money in the common conception. Therefore, given how the dollar behaves in terms of global liquidity, global money supply, you would expect that the dollar would be inversely related to the Federal Reserve or Federal Reserve's balance sheet and therefore, you know, especially its remainder in bank reserves, because that's the money that's been printing. If we start with, I mean, look, what the what Jay Powell did from late February on until the middle of May was nothing short of extraordinary. But that was the point. In his mind, he has to make it seem extraordinary because his entire monetary policy structure is is built up upon expectations, influencing expectations, you know, shock and awe. That's really what the Fed is. And so, yeah, it was 1.65 trillion in additional bank reserves in a 12-week period, which I believe, going off of memory, was not quite three times what Ben Bernanke did in October and November of 2008, which, again, I think that was his point. You know, I, I'm bigger numbers. It's, it's much more impressive. Look at this flood of bank reserves. Now, whether it's a flood of money if it was a monetary flood, shouldn't the dollar fall as Jay Powell is adding all of this liquidity, flooding the system, as he said? Wouldn't the dollar fall? And therefore, we would expect the level of bank reserves to be inversely related to the dollar's direction. As, the, as Jay Powell floods the system of liquidity, that relaxes the shortage, and then eventually you would expect that it would alleviate the shortage entirely, pushing the dollar down and down and down. But what we see instead is that the dollar goes up, then bank reserves go up in the same direction. So what, again, going back to our leaky bucket analogy, what's really happening is Jay Powell is seeing the level in the bucket fall because it's already leaking. The leaks are very large and a lot of water has flown out. And so he's trying to add water back in using the only tool he has at his disposal, which are bank reserves. And what you end up seeing then by that direct relationship is that the Fed is nothing more than a reactive policymaker trying to influence expectations, not adding liquidity, but adding the perception of adding liquidity and hoping that people buy it. What the, the, what the dollar going up and then staying up says is that in the marketplace where it actually matters, nobody bought it because there was no real flood. Jeff, then the dollar starts going down, and so does the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. Why are, they, uh, why are they pulling back? What's going on? Well, again, we talked about before, this, this midpoint in May, mid-May, is a very important part, a very important signal in what's going on in, in the markets and the economy because that, that's when reopening started to really take shape and where it became a real possibility. And so that took a lot of pressure off of the, the global dollar system simply because, well, first of all, commerce was being restarted. Therefore, dollars were actually flowing through the system, through the global system again, number one. Number two, it was a sentimental boost because now it's, okay, we've been through it. We've gotten through the worst of it. Maybe it does get better from here. Forget Jay Powell. Just maybe the economy does start to heal. So for whatever combination of reasons that had nothing to do with Jay Powell, the dollar system started to get a little bit better, at least less of a negative less negative pressures behind it, which in our analogy means some of the leaks were smaller. The bucket's still kind of leaking, but it's not leaking at the same pace as it, as it was before. And what that did to monetary policy was that, that redu reduction in financial and, and, and monetary pressure allowed him to scale back his own activities. QE was pulled back. Um, yes, they were still expanding their balance sheet, and a lot, most of that cash was going into the Treasury's general account, 
which unfortunately we won't get a chance to talk about today. But, you know, the level of bank reserves, this flood of money into the banking system that we, we keep hearing about, all of a sudden that goes down too. So as the dollar is falling a little bit slightly because of this reopening process, that, that leads the Federal Reserve to be reactive yet again by pulling back on the throttle, at least their conception of the throttle, because there's, no, there's not the same amount of pressure. And so both up and down, dollar and bank reserves, the, direction, the, the relationship is a direct one when it should be inverse, right? Again, if, if the Fed is flooding with the world of bank reserves and they're pulling back, you know, think about quantitative tightening, all that crap they talked about before all this happened in 2018 and 2019. If the lack of bank reserves or less bank reserves is tightening, why wouldn't that push the dollar higher? And the reason is because the Fed is simply reacting to the marketplace and trying to, trying to influence economic and financial agents' behavior so that they then act in accordance with these monetary policy signals. Because when you look at it, when you get down to it, as we saw in 2008, as we see again in 2020, the monetary policy is not about money. It's about expectations and about signals. Bank reserves are simply an accounting fiction. You just mentioned the U.S. Treasury's general account and that we won't have enough time to it. But I think we can discuss it because it's somewhat pretty simple, I think. And it's something that you've been discussing before. I'll just set up the scene. The U.S. general account is the United States government checking account. It's held at the U.S. Treasury. And it's approximately three times higher right now in July 2020 than it was at any point during the last 244 years. It could be inflationary, but like reserves and the correlation, it's directly correlated to trouble, not that there's, this is going to be inflationary because of the leaky bucket. I think there's a, there's, there's a lot of uh, confusion about the Treasury General account because it's somewhat backwards. It's, it's somewhat convoluted because of the way the accounting actually works. When, when the general account balance goes up, that's actually taking bank reserves away from the banking system. And so the rise in the general account balance is a, in the common perception, draining of liquidity. That's exactly what the Federal Reserve attempted to use it for back in 2008 when they were convinced there was too much money during the worst monetary panic in four generations. Again, another, another way to demonstrate how these people are so completely clueless about how the system works they actually believed they needed the Treasury to take bank reserves away from the banking system during a monetary panic. That's how bad these people are. But that's uh, accounting-wise, that's, that's exactly what it is. Every dollar that goes into the general account is a dollar that can't be used by the banking system. So what has happened over the last couple of months is that the Treasury has been building up this massive pile of cash in its cash equivalent in its treasury general account, I think it's over 1.6 trillion. That's how much cash the federal government has to spend. That's 1.6 trillion that the banking system doesn't have to, doesn't have available for its own uses. So the Fed has expanded its own balance sheet, its overall balance sheet to accommodate essentially two floods. There's the, sing the first flood, which we just talked about, which was the bank reserve, the increase in bank reserves that you can see in the banking system. And the second flood, is this rise in the Treasury's general account that essentially is cash that is currently locked up in the government's hands waiting to be used. And that's what people are saying is inflationary. 
is once that $1.6 trillion in cash is then spent by the government in whatever fashion, it gets released back into the economy, there's, an, there's another inflationary pressure that will certainly destroy the dollar and, and blow, up the, blow up the treasury market. When in fact, you know, you have to ask yourself first, why is the government holding that much cash to begin with? What are they thinking? What are they preparing for? This is essentially a rainy day fund. It's not a monetary policy fund in this case. There's no cooperation with the Federal Reserve. But why are they holding $1.6 trillion in cash? What are they preparing for? It's not a one. Well, what I'm showing right now in the YouTube simulcast is the last graph of your article here. And it goes back to our big theme of the leaky bucket. They're preparing to fill in all of the GDP that's been lost already or and one of your articles uh, maybe a month ago or so maybe two months ago you did a forecast of how much gdp the united states is going to be short and you came up with roughly 3.4 trillion relative to the 2020 baseline and so there you go the government's got 1.6 that they're trying to fill in and uh, the whole is 3.4 trillion big just rough numbers but it gives you the sense yeah, I think that's the point, right? I mean, we're, talk we're not talking strictly monetary now. We're talking about in real economy. What's, what's been lost in GDP, when we're talking about nominal GDP, that's spending that doesn't happen, that's profits that don't show up, that's earned income that people don't earn, it's investment that won't get done because companies are hurting and laying off workers and all these other bad things. That's the economic bucket that has already leaked out you know, by the time we get to the end of the year, something like, say, three, four trillion, whatever, whatever it ends up being, a massive amount. What the federal government is, is attempting to do is to fill some of that in to hopefully keep the economy in at least somewhat of a reasonable state so that when we do get to some kind of recovery, it can actually be a recovery, that we're not going to suffer any, any more economic, second and third order economic effects for this massive, this massive hole in the economy that's already been created. That's what that 1.6 trillion is for, and as you put it, Emil, it's they're trying to put that back into a bucket that's already leaked out. You know, something like three trillion. So it's not inflationary. It's a it's a it's an attempt to offset deflation that has one already happened, as we saw in the CPI, and is likely to continue to happen if the as the economy gets past only its reopening phase and starts to experience more of the purely economic stuff. Jeff, do you think that in the next week, the monetary and economic Humpty Dumpty is going to be put back together? In what way? <laughs> Just, <laughs> the if, whole if, thing? Yeah, that's right. The whole thing. The whole thing. If not, go ahead, go ahead. No, okay. What I was going to say is that, look, in the history of these things, once once Humpty Dumpty gets broken, that's it, man. I mean, that's what really 2008 was. I mean, the first global financial crisis was, you know, Humpty got a little bit of a crack on his shell on August 9th, 2007. And from there, the crack just, you know, the fracture just proliferated throughout his entire body. And by, you know, by the time of Lehman Brothers, it really bare sterns. Humpty was screwed. There was no, I mean, he, there was no putting him back together. He was going to be completely destroyed. Once these things happen, once these behaviors start to change in the monetary system and the financial system, there's no really getting them back until enough leverage and enough risk-taking and enough bad behavior gets expunged from the system. 
And the way it gets expunged from the system is through deflationary type processes, monetary destruction, the leaky bucket. When enough water leaks out of the bucket such that we can then get to reach an equilibrium in a much lower state. I think well, once that process begins, once the first bucket shows up or once, once the first leak shows up in the bucket, you know, the Fed doesn't, doesn't try to repair the leak. It tries to add more water back in. Maybe we can use the little pieces of Humpty Dumpty and plug the bucket up. But <laughs> if it's not done, and then you have to figure out the right pieces, you know, <laughs> do we have to figure out uh, Humpty's anatomy? I mean, there's, there's <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a good analogy because that's what we we're talking about. Because when we look, take a look at the dollar system. There's not one dollar system or there's not one feature that we can focus on. There's all these different pieces, repo collateral, FX, you know, all of these different monetary markets that make up a mono, what seems to be or what used to be a, a monolithic whole. There's really all of these different, there's all these different kinds of leaks that, you know, maybe it would take a different kind of policy or different kind of looking at the, the problem to plug this leak versus to plug that leak. And I think that's really the point is it's not just one leak we can maybe plug there's all these different leaks that you know they're related to each other but they're not exactly the same either well then that's good news because that means we're going to be able to do another show if it's not going to be fixed by next week and we'll do another show so i invite the audience to come back and we'll check up on the economy and where the monetary order is going and uh, what's not being discussed in the mainstream financial press i'll talk to you again next week jeff Okay, Mel, take care.